The following sermon is from Lifeway Church of Billings. Teaching a sermon entitled, Trouble with the Genius of Me, is Pastor Stacy Gaylord. Good morning, church. Please make your way to Proverbs chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 7 and 8 this morning. Follow along with me. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come and gather together and hear your word preached. Lord, bless Stacy as he comes and delivers your word for us. Lord, we pray for open hearts and open ears, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. I'll kind of set it up. We have been in uh, 1 Corinthians working our way through uh, that great book as a, as a church family. And uh, I, I originally wasn't scheduled to preach today. I had a great vacation with my family, um, in, enjoying some time away and relaxing and connecting with each other. And so that was great. Um, but I thought there's this, uh, there's this verse that I have been, or these couple of verses here that I've been noodling around in my mind and in my own heart for, I don't know, probably six months or so. And so when we had a change of plans and when I thought, rather than change kind of the way I had laid out my sermon calendar, I've been wanting to address this for a while. Just think it's, this is what, these are those there's a couple of verses that are always great to be reminded of and to address. And so, you know, as Tyler read, it's be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So I want to start by framing this kind of one-off sermon here with a question. Just rhetorical, don't answer out loud. You think you're smart, don't you? And those of you who said to yourself, no, you just lied to yourself, didn't you, right? <laughs> See, this every once in a while I preach a sermon and I'm trying to help you get over yourself. I'm trying to help me get over myself and break off this kind of sick self-love that puts you on the wrong end of the narcissism spectrum. And this is one of those sermons. You're welcome. Um, so today, it's about being wrong about always thinking you're right. Now, you might say to yourself, I know I'm not always right. Well, do you know that in the moment? Because if you think you're always right in the moment, you think you're always right. And this is a sermon about that. These Proverbs give us some wisdom from God about that very issue. So what we're going to do is we're going to take these two verses, cover them in three parts, and just do a simple evaluation. That's it. Just three parts on what God has to say here about the way we appraise ourselves, kind of this inflated self-evaluation, this inflated self-appraisal. What do we do that? Uh, what do we do about that? And the idea is that if you get smarter, you get better. But you can't just feel, feel smart. Feel smarter doesn't mean you are smarter. You can't just feel smarter. You have to actually be smarter. That's, it's easy to feel a certain way so often. But it has to be the real thing. It has to be real wisdom. So let's look at these two verses. And like I said, we'll cover it in three parts. 
verses 7 and 8. So what do we do about answering this inflated self-appraisal? We find a common problem at the beginning of verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes, he says. Be not wise in your own eyes. This is a common problem. In other words, all of us have it some of the time. Some of you have it all of the time. Be not wise in your own, eye, uh, in your own eyes. One of, one of the things we realize here is that God is a really good psychologist. Like he, he's the manufacturer, the designer. He put you together. And as he did, he does, it's not just the outward forms of you that he understands so well. It's the way you tick and what drives you. And he warns, don't do this. This is knowing the mind. Knowing that you're susceptible to bad mind notions. He knows you're going to be tempted to do this. Something uh, is messed up in the way your mind works that just draws you to think in this way. To being wise in your own eyes. To thinking you're smart and it's not going to be good for you. So God's very insightful here. You've done this a lot and he says, hey, don't. Be warned. Be careful about the way you see yourself. Lest you think you're smarter than you are. And what does it mean to be wise in your own eyes? You know, I was thinking about this on the vacation. We had a friend with us, a good chunk of it. And we were just we were in the car joking around. And like, how do people come up with names? You know, they're funny last names. And we won't get into my name, but they're funny last names. But the etymology of it, as you trace it back to its origins, you might like say... Okay, well, there is Fred Carpenter. And probably, if you're to trace back his lineage, somewhere along the line, his, you know, his, his great, 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 great grandfather was Fred the Carpenter. And sooner or later, they just dropped the Carpenter. He's Fred. Which Fred? You know, Fred the Water Carrier or Fred the Carpenter? No, no, Fred the Carpenter. And they just started calling him Fred Carpenter. So Carpenter was the name. Or... Say, some, say somebody, somebody, some blacksmith or smith. You know, somewhere back there, they worked with iron-shaped things, and sooner or later, you have a name, Smith, because that's what your family did. You ever wonder, was there a family who's like, we don't do anything, but what shall we call ourselves? The son says, you know what? Let's call ourselves the brilliance. And the father says, no, 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 son, that's, that's far too pompous. Let's simply, merely, humbly refer to ourselves as the wise, right? So like Frederick the wise and so on. What does it mean to be wise? How is it that uh, you really, really, what does it mean to be wise in your own eyes? Not in someone else's eyes, he says, not in God's. It's the way you see yourself. To be wise in your own eyes is to think you know better, not so much in theory, because most people are pretty good about that. To be wise in your own eyes is to think you know better in the moment when it really gets tested. See, so you're, you're wired to where you're supposed to use your brain. Like you are supposed to rely on your brain. You're supposed to rely on the way you think. As you're, you're, as you use your brain to process things and evaluate things, and you're supposed to use that to make good decisions, the reason that Everybody in this room is alive today is because you've used your brain to your advantage. 
The reason that you're not as far along as you ought to be is that you haven't done that enough, and a lot of times there's been a lot of self-sabotage there. You're supposed to use your brain, but there's a problem in the system now. Like a computer with a virus, so it doesn't function properly. Even though your brain is made to think, even though it was made that way, be not wise in your own eyes. Be careful about thinking that you're smarter than you really are. Let me give you a couple of implications. Whenever he says that and God gives us this warning, one of those is, so, so why should you be careful about this? One, you're not really good at judging your own wisdom. That's a problem. We, we all think we know where we rank. We rarely see ourselves as we are. Most people are so distorted, we either see ourselves as less than we are or more than we are. We rarely see ourselves as we are. You're not going to be very good at accurately judging your own wisdom. You're going to tend to think you're right. But the wisdom you see in yourself is often not real wisdom. There was a first century Roman politician, thinker, you know, influencer, whatever you want to call him, named Seneca, and this is a paraphrase. But he once said that what often keeps people from getting wisdom is being sure that they already have it. Most people, the, it's not that they don't have the ability to get smarter. It's that there's something in the way so that they can't get smarter because this thing is in the way. What's in the way? They already think they're smart. So they're never open to learning. They're never open to considering the possibility that they're wrong. That's one of the implications is that you're not a good, accurate judge of your own wisdom. The second is that you won't have the ability to appreciate the wisdom of others if you're wise in your own eyes. Look, if it means everything to you that you're smart, then other people can't be. This is, some people are so entrenched. Some, listen, there are a lot of people out there with folded arms living in misery. Sure, they're right about everything. Entrenched, firm, Firm in their resolution that what they're doing is not working. It's never worked, but they're right. Listen, you're going to have a really hard time seeing the wisdom in other people that's really there if you have an inflated view of your own wisdom, thinking it's there when it's actually not. So here's why you need to watch out for this. In the Bible, we often see these two kinds of wisdom set up next to each other. There's like a self-wisdom, and self-wisdom is always set against God's wisdom. Right? You, in other words, you see that God says something, but the, the quote-unquote wisdom in you, the self-wisdom says, well, that's not really what I want. Really what drives most self-wisdom is simply desire. I want a particular result, so I'm going to argue and rationalize and justify to get that particular conclusion. So let me give you a few examples and you can, out of the Bible, and you can see something of the psychology of sin, the way sin infects or, or imprints the mindset, okay? So first example, the serpent approaches Adam and Eve, primarily Eve, in the garden, and what is his approach? It's the thinking, right? Did God really say that? And if you do concede that God did really say this, is he right about what he said? Now listen, there's the genesis of an awful lot of sin there. The, the effect of sin, what do we see in the garden? You hide, you make excuses, you blame the other. But at the, at the outset of it, at the genesis of it, the beginning, what do we do? So, well, is that, is that really what he said? Is that really what he meant? 
And if he, if he, if he did mean that, was he right? Because having done this job for an awful long time, I find that there are a lot, a lot of people who would claim Christ and say God is right about everything he says in his word, even this verse that ought to apply to me, except I'm the exception. My situation here has additional complicating factors, you see. Now, is that not a way of making yourself wiser than God? I'll give you another example. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. This is the one you know right before this. Tyler, um, a week or so ago, was teaching on these two verses over uh, with the students. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will make your paths straight. See how self-wisdom and God's wisdom are set against each other? Trust in the Lord. Don't lean on your wisdom, your understanding. Proverbs twelve fifteen, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Remember, I just talked about the ability we have for making an exception for ourselves. Well, sure, the fool is right in his own eyes. The fool is wise in his own eyes. I'm wise in my own eyes, but I'm not a fool. How many fools do you know who say, I'm a fool? Right? So the inability to recognize the fool in you is one of the first symptoms. A fool, the way of a fool is right in his own, why, his own eyes, but listen to the other part, the counterpart. A wise man, what does a wise man do? Does he know everything? A wise man listens to advice. He knows he doesn't know everything. He knows somebody else might have a perspective that can help him. So what do we see in, the, in this warning here, this common problem, be not wise in your own eyes? There's true wisdom being offered to you, and it's way better than your own. But you're always going to struggle. You're always going to seem to want your own and, and seem to want the world to work in a different way than it does. And the world's not going to do that for you. It's not going to do that for me. It's not going to do that for anybody. The world works the way it does, burdened by sin. And if you're smart, you'll want the real thing. And evidently, that's it's not something that's just going to re- reside inherently within you. So don't assume that you know everything all the time. In other words, be not wise in your own eyes. That's the common problem. It's common. All of us have it some of the time. Some of us have it all of the time. Second part. It's the only solution. You say, well, that, that, that's a problem. What's the answer? And he says it in the second part of verse 7. The answer to this mindset problem that sees ourselves as wise when we're actually not. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That's the response. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. There are really two parts to it. It's one response, right? They're the other side of the, one is the other side of the same coin. To turn away from, to fear the Lord and turn away from, the, from evil. You turn away from evil because the Lord is good. Um, but let's take it in two parts. Fear the Lord. Let me start with this idea. We, we, we have grown up in a therapeutic culture. We have been told from the time that we were in children, that, that the time that we were children, that our feelings are paramount. If somebody hurt your feelings, they deserve the death penalty, right? That's the, we're not to be, you know, I mean, let alone that you've got an inner child, but if somebody spanks your inner child, that's just awful. It's just, uh, we can't get over ourselves. But in the Bible, the word fear is used, and it does include emotion, but it's not only emotion. See, we, we think because of our just common parlance, the way we use it, 
But our meaning isn't exactly the way the Bible uses it. Whenever we say we're afraid of something, we mean we feel fear. And if we include our response to that, it's a fear-driven response. That's much closer to the way the Bible means it. The Bible means that there is a, there is a way that you see something that actually moves you. Right? It's the response to it. It's what you honor the most. So the fear of man is, is being so consumed with what other people think that that is paramount and that you're going to live your life in regard to the way other people see you. But to fear the Lord is the exact opposite. It's to see the Lord as paramount and to live your life in terms of what he says and what he says in particular about you. So how do you think of the Lord in this sense? Let me be a little bit abstract, not too philosophical. But just because of the way in a, in a therapeutic age where we tend to put ourselves at the center in a, in a culture where there's a nominal Christianity is rampant, and it's very easy to put God as a part of our lives, sometimes in name only and sometimes with some, some genuine feeling. How do you see the Lord? I think to see him as the great consequence. I know that's a little abstract. To see him as the great consequence. Anything but irrelevant or simply one factor. Is he ultimate? Is he just one factor or is he no factor at all? Well, to fear him, he has to be the ultimate. It starts with the person who is. It starts with the person who really exists. I mean, if we, if we come together to worship God and to submit ourselves to, to him. As people who come to him through Jesus Christ, we believe that God is present in our midst this very, mo- this very morning, in this moment. So let me give you two angles on it. We all have something like this that we can relate to. One angle is this. There's a person that you don't want to hurt or offend or disappoint at any cost, Right? So you start, let's just say you start dating somebody, right? And then, you know, you're, you're walking across, say it's college, and you're walking across campus, and, you know, you've, you've become a thing. And you see her across the campus, and her name is, I don't know, let's say Kara. And you see her across the campus, <laughs> and your eyes meet, and involuntarily your hand goes to your heart, right? Like, if, what, what happens if your, your imaginary girlfriend named Kara is mad at you? What's, what's your world like then? Well, your world is awful. You're devastated. But if Kara loves you and she admires you and all is at peace, what's your world like then? It's fabulous. It doesn't matter if they mess up your order, you know, at Burger King or what. It doesn't matter because the thing that matters the most, you're fine there. You're good there. You're together and you enjoy being together. Okay, so that's, that's one angle. So in a more abstract, I want you to think about this. We can get the same sense without the person. That's the limit of this analogy. If you think of water or a mountain or electricity, there's, there's benefit and power there. So what happens if you walk in a room and you flip a switch You don't know how it works. We have people in this room who know how it works. They can do that for you. You flip a switch, and boom, let there be light, right? Great. 
awesome. Just convenient. It's safe. Even a child can do it. What happens if you take that cover off and you, don't do this at home, kids, and you take the cover off and there's wires in there and you put your tongue to it? Well, you're going to have a different hairdo before it's all said and done. You do that enough and you'll die. What about uh, um, mountains? We, we're blessed to live where we do, where we can hike, I mean, just almost at a moment's notice, right? And you can go out on a mountain and you can be in the presence of the, of the mountain, enjoy the mountain, its beauty and all of that, but you better respect it lest you die. So Kara and I were talking about this, my imaginary girlfriend from college, uh, who I ended up marrying. Um, so we were talking about this with water not that long ago. Think about water. So is water something that you're afraid of? Well, doesn't it kind of depend on the context? If you respect it, you're fine. So you need water to live. If you don't have water, you'll die. You need it. You need water to be clean. Hopefully within the last 72 hours or so, you have showered before you came and you blessed us that you um, are, you know, not odiferously uh, offensive, right? So you, to be clean, you see kids swimming around and they have joy in water. We put water on things so that it'll grow. But have you ever stood at the base or have you ever stood on the shore of an ocean and looked out and as far as you could see is water? And you watch what in harbor was a huge ship and as it goes out there, it gets dwarfed and it becomes nothing in the waves, right? You ever stood at the base of the falls knowing if I go in there, it'll kill me? It's just water. It's what you drink every day. It's what you use to clean yourself. It's what you put on your plants to keep them green and to help them grow. You can enjoy it and admire it comfortably, but if you get on the wrong side of its power, you die. Fear the Lord. You don't need to be in terror. You can enjoy him. You can know his presence, his life, his forgiveness. Get on the wrong side of his power, though. Get on the wrong side of his power. And you'll know it. In the Bible, fearing the Lord is simply to regard him as he is. To give him the place that he already has, with or without your consent, and to know that from the heart. Okay? So that's the only solution, is to fear the Lord. But the other side of that same coin is to turn away from evil. It's to turn away, since God is good and you're turning to him, it's to turn away from the thing that is the opposite of God, evil. Hebrews 12 says that sin we have this kind of relationship to us. It clings to us. We were out uh, hiking in a, well, we actually weren't hiking. We were playing this game called Falf. Have you guys ever played that? Now, I'm not a golf person because it's, I, my only problem is I can't hit that dang little white ball. But other than that, I would probably be great at, at, at it. But it turns out I'm a lot at Falf like I am golf. So, you know, whenever you throw, it's a Frisbee that you throw into the cage, right? It's like golf with the Frisbee. So, but if, you, if your form is like this and you throw it, right, to go to the hole, the net that you're supposed to put it in, but you throw the Frisbee and then you have to go over there to find it, that's, you're probably not a very good player. Well, I threw mine into the trees and I got these little stick tights is what we call them in Oklahoma. I don't know what they call them up here. All in my clothes and I had to pick them out like one at a time. They just sting. When, uh, they, they stick to you. They cling to you. When, when we were kids, we'd get them in our socks and you'd have to individually take them out. 
Hebrews 12 says that sin is like that to us. It grabs onto us and it clings so closely and we have to just, we've got to shed it. We've got to leave it. What does this say? Turn away from evil. It's the self-destructive part of our nature and it's so powerful that it destroys you and it destroys community and it destroys relationships. If you have the King James Version, it says to depart from evil. If you have the NIV, it says to shun evil. What does that mean? Listen, establish a hostile relationship to evil in your life. Turn away from it. That's a, do, worry less at the moment about the evil in everybody else's life. Worry most primarily about the evil in your life. Have established, declare a hostile relationship to it. Turn away from it, leave it, shun it, reject it, repudiate it, hate it, and make war on it. The Bible has another word for this. It's called repentance. Wisdom is a life always poised to do this, to turn away from evil and to fear the Lord. It's actually motivated by fear of the Lord. That means, now get the meaning. What does repentance mean? Churchy word. To change your mind and commitments about something that needs to change. Repentance means to change your mind and commitments about something that needs to change. Martin Luther, in the first of his 95 theses, declared, right, the, the Protestant Reformation, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now, a lot of people object to this. We'll, we, in the church, we'll use the word repentance. And what do we hear from people? That's old way of thinking. Repent, really? That's old way of thinking. Listen to me. Not only is God right, God is always right. Listen, everyone believes in repentance. Everybody, everybody you believe assumes a worldview where people are broken. They believe in turning things around. Most of them wish they could. In the secular world, how often have you heard somebody say, you know what, I'm too heavy. I need to change that. I eat too much, or I don't read enough, or right. I need to stop being so picky at the people I care about because I'm undermining our relationship. What are they saying? I have to change. I have to repent. So you might say, well, that's old. Yeah, maybe, or maybe it's old because God has been good to humanity for a really long time, and he's let us know this for years and centuries. And without this knowledge, this realization, we're doomed and we'll doom ourselves. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That's the only solution to that common problem. All right, what do we find? What's the third part in verse 8? It's the needed outcome. He says, it'll be um, healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. In other words, it says, do verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Why? Verse 8. You do it so that it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. You need this. The deceit of sin and selfishness works like this. Why do you do it? And there, there are lots of angles on this, but part of the reason is this. You're driven to do it because you think it will give you something that the Lord Jesus won't give you. Right? You, you'll reach out for your sin because it will give you something that God says, I'm not going to give that to you. And you assume you know better than God. So you'll sin and you'll, you'll nourish yourself to feet, deceit. 
You'll do it for freedom, but your sin will entrap you. You'll do it for pleasure, but the pleasure won't last. It'll leave you. You'll do it to promote yourself, and you'll find that your sin debases you. You do it to be happy, and you find you're not. It's this sad irony in the world. I know a handful of people like this that just come to mind. There are certain people who are excellent at always getting what they want. I mean, they're just gifted at it. It's a bad kind of gift. But in the moment, they can always manipulate the situation to get their result. I've, I've known at least a half a dozen of these people. I've never known one to be remotely happy. Isn't that something? You do the math on that. If you say you always get what you want, shouldn't you be happy? No. You want to know why? Because you're not made to always get what you want. You're never going to learn to love, and you're never going to learn to be fulfilled unless seeing other people, unless other people mean more to you than you mean to yourself. And you're never going to be fulfilled unless it makes you happy to see other people happy. It's the way the relational math works, and that's the way you're really, really wired. So you can always get what you want, but you, it won't be what you want. Not the final result won't be. Let me give you a good, what I think is a good example of this. Say you have a bad conflict. Bad conflict. So this is the kind of the feeling, the sense of it. And, um, you know, have you, have, you could just be dominated by it, right? You have this relationship with somebody, and if they're in the room, it's palpable. You can feel it. You can feel yourself getting tense and all of that. You're not, you resent them. You're not forgiving them. And it's, you hate to say this, but that person controls you. When you're consumed by that, you're controlled by it. You know, the, the old statement that resentment is drinking poison, hoping the other person will die. Right? It's, it's, it's setting a fire in your living room, looking out your window to see your neighbor's house burn down. That's resentment. Have you ever done that? And you justify yourself whenever you do this. You've got this bad conflict. It's their fault. They ought to come to me. I shouldn't have to make the first move, right? They ought to come to me. Um, and frankly, what they've done is unforgivable. I don't know if I could forgive them anyway. And everything is dark and tense, and it's all clouds and storm. And it dominates your mindset. You live in this dark world. But if you do have the crucial conversation, you reconcile and you forgive each other. There's sun. And it happens in a moment. You ever done that? Like we're all broody and tense and it's all bad. And then you talk it out and you're like, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry too. And you do it with reality and you forgive each other. And then the storm is gone. You turn away from evil and it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Evil's effect, this is what you have to know. You need to know this on a quote-unquote practical level, but you need to know it on the ultimate level as well. You need to turn away from evil because it kills you. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is not happiness. It's not pulling one over on God. It's not getting away with one. The wages of sin is death. Proverbs 14.30 says, envy makes the bones rot. That's evil's effect. We, um, yesterday, we were coming back from uh, our vacation, you know, long drive and everything. We're getting coffee to go and, and all this. And we're in this coffee place. Um, and in the, in the 
area where they're working, there's a guy there. You think about customer service, right? And there's this guy there, and he looks like this is where I belong. This is where the Lord has me now, and I'm going to serve people by giving them the, the caffeine that is so much needed for their long journeys throughout their day, right? And he's just a joy to interact with. And there's a girl next to him who looks like misery incarnate. I mean, her face is just, you know, the Bible would say, the King James Version would say, like, her countenance had fallen, right? I mean, she just, she looks like, and, and if she hands you your coffee, you're like, I don't know if I should drink this. Like, like, what does she have? I don't want that. I want to have what that guy had, right? Evil's effect is, it has an internal effect that, um, actually informs the way you see yourself and relate to people and walk through the world. This is the needed outcome to fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Because as long as you la- allow yourself to live at peace with your own evil, you won't live at peace. You'll live a burdened life. You'll be trying to function with internal rot. And you can't do it. Listen, I've been visiting, so I've been doing this like 20 years, right? You know, part of the gig is you go to hospitals. And we believe, like, at Lifeway, we believe if you're a pastor, you're supposed to be a pastor. You're not, like, a local celebrity or anything like that, real people. And so that we're supposed to be a part of, I mean, I'm just a member of the church. I just happen to have this role. But part of the gig is you go to hospitals when people are sick and and whatnot. And there, there are things I'm better at and things that I'm not. And so, but, you know, some people want you to visit them, some people don't, but it would be a common thing, you know. Somebody has a hip replacement. You know, you go visit them in the hospital and you joke around and you kid around because they're, they're going to get better and all that stuff. And, um, you know, how you feeling, you in pain, how you sleeping, you pray with them and everything. But if somebody hears, I have cancer, they sober up really quickly. I've been doing this 20 years, and I've never heard of somebody going, the doctor told me you have cancer, we need to remove it, and the person going, whoa, wait, remove my cancer? No, I mean, take, take my spleen, but not my cancer. I've got to keep my cancer, right? I mean, I mean you could ask, but the answer is no. You can't have my cancer. That, that's my cancer, That's what sin does with us. The sin that that clings to us, we cling to, our minds are distorted so that we love and protect what kills us. It's telling the doctor, no, you can't take my cancer. It starts with this premise, verse 8 does. A relationship with evil always undermines your good. In a fallen world like ours, the only way to have health is to have a hostile relationship with evil fueled by God's grace. This, listen, there are people who do not believe in God, say, say psychologists, and they've done studies on this to compare people who struggle with resentment and envy and things like that and the effect that it has on them physiologically. And they're just the simple ability to navigate relationships. You cannot cultivate evil and have a good life because it'll undermine you. Okay, those are the three. It's really simple with a proverb like this, right? What he says is direct. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It'll be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. How do you apply this? That common problem with that great solution and the needed outcome. Let me give you four things. 
Evaluate the relationship you have with each of these respectively. Evaluate the relationship you have with each of these. Now, if you notice, there's a box there that you could check, and that's near and dear to my heart. I'm a box checker. I like to get things done, and I like to evaluate and be firm about it. So we've got two options. This is healthy. It's basically healthy. Maybe not perfectly, but this isn't that big a deal. I can check that. That's fine. Or repent to change your mind and your commitments about something that needs to change. This needs change. Evaluate your relationship with each of these four. Number one, yourself. How how is it that you're relating to yourself? There's a lot of self-talk in Scripture, and that's good because there's a lot of self-talk in real life. Be not wise where? In your own eyes. The way you see yourself. How do you see yourself? Do you evaluate yourself in such a way that you're just too high of an appraisal? Are you wise in your own eyes? Do you see yourself as the most important person? I told you before, and this is true, if you never learn to love someone more than yourself, than yourself, you'll never be happy. Number two, evaluate the relationship you have with God. Fear the Lord. He is the great consequence. He is the ultimate source of wisdom. Is that healthy? Are you walking with God? Is your life Uh, lived quorum day before the face of God, or is that something that needs to change? Number three, evaluate the relationship you have with other people. Be not wise in your own eyes. In other words, have respect also for the opinions of, of, of others, the wisdom of others. Do you have the ability to see the talents in other people? Some of you do, and that's why you don't like them. Some, for some of you, the people you like the least are the people most gifted? Or do you just not see any talent in anybody else at all? Do you just look around every room you walk into and go, bunch of idiots, right? I'm the only person who knows anything ever. Do you see their value? Do you value their opinions? What's the relationship you have with other people? And number four, evaluate the relationship you have with evil. Your evil, your sin. Is it friendly or hostile? Do you have a relationship with evil that needs some war? Because you won't be well being at peace with what kills you. I mean, that's the bottom line. Are you smart? What the Bible calls wise? Well, prove it now. What's the best response you can make to put Proverbs 3, verses 7 and 8 into practice? Let me close with this. Let me give you the best application, I think, of Proverbs 3, verses 7 and 8. Right? So it, it just repeat it real quick, and then I'll, I'll echo something out of the New Testament. It says, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. What's the ultimate way you do that? Paul was writing a church in the first century. It's 1 Thessalonians 1.9. And he talks about rejoicing about how they turn away from idols to turn to the living God, to fear and serve the living God. Jesus put himself up to be your way back to God, bearing your evil so you could have his goodness. Maybe it's the response you need to make this morning that's the best response to Proverbs 3, 7, and 8, to turn away from the idols in your life and to turn to God and to come to him through Jesus. That's wisdom. That's the first step to get it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its its variety. You know, we see narratives. We see how you operated in real time and real people's lives and real circumstances in history. 
and we can be instructed from that. We see frameworks of, of doctrine and, and uh, practical helps in the church, you know, where an apostle maybe addresses a need. We see the life of Jesus and the, the character he has there. We see, um, we see all these things. We see in the Psalms praise. We will also see in a book like Proverbs, just you declare yourself and say, this is wisdom. And we find the ultimate embodiment of wisdom to be Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. May we live it. And we also realize that we live out of that in these everyday, ordinary ways of stewardship. May we live lives of wisdom to honor the great Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The preceding has been a teaching of Lifeway Church of Billings. 